This week's podcast is sponsored by Destinations Career Academy, powered by K-12. Destinations serves school districts with flexible CTE solutions to get students future ready for a changing job market, providing career exploration, real-world experience, and certifications prep. Learn more at destinationsacademy.com school hyphen districts. That's destinationsacademy.com slash school hyphen districts. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young. We're in a time of discovery when it comes to teaching. There's a budding field called the science of teaching and learning where scholars are figuring out what works when it comes to educating students. And there's actually a lot of excitement around that. But there's a big challenge of of getting those findings to folks at the front of the classroom. You know, to make sure no one's reading their PowerPoints aloud or or using techniques that just don't connect with students. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? A new book focuses on how to move these science of teaching findings into actual teaching. The book focuses on colleges, but I'd say it has something to offer to educators at all grade levels. It's called Learning Innovation and the Future of Higher Education. So the book is all about change and and how to change the systems that support teaching. But the authors, they're not outsiders trying to to bust up education as we know it. They're they're longtime leaders in higher education, and and they have a focus on helping their institutions change. You know, in a way, I think we're somewhat uh, traditional, and we we kind of recognize that um, faculty really have innovation fatigue. Like, like they hate the word innovation because it's something being done to them rather than listening to them and supporting what they're trying to do in their classrooms. That's Joshua Kim, Dartmouth College's Director of Online Programs and Strategy. And he's co-author of the book, along with Eddie Maloney, the Executive Director of Georgetown University's Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship. These innovation guys argue that teachers of all types get a bad rap, unfairly, they say, when they're portrayed in the media as, as clinging to old practices and refusing to change. You know, like those famous scenes in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bueller? Bueller? They're probably going to cringe at those, <laughs> at those Ferris Bueller clips. I connected with Josh and Eddie recently to talk about their vision of, of how higher ed can change in a way that works with the teachers and instructors and professors. And full disclosure, I've actually known these guys for, for a while um, as people I've, I've interviewed um, as I've been covering education. So before we get to the interview, I want to make one quick note about timing. We recorded this a couple weeks ago, and you know, that's how we do it. And one person that Josh and Eddie respectfully disagree with in our conversation is Clayton Christensen, a giant of business theory, and he came up with that famous framework of disruptive innovation. Now, since then, you might have seen in the news that um, Christensen actually passed away the other day. And, and we did an essay on Ed Surge that, that talks about his life and work. You can look back at, at that. Of course, we, have, we had no idea when we did the interview that that was about to happen. Um, but from everything I've read about Clayton Christensen, I, I'm guessing he'd be happy to see his ideas uh, debated and engaged with. Okay, that's enough background. Let's get to the conversation. Eddie Maloney, you're, you're sitting in an office in Georgetown University. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Appreciate it. And and Josh Kim, you are up at Dartmouth. That's correct, Jeff. It's great to be here with you. One of the things that struck me most in in your book was that 
you are the innovation guys, so to speak, but you're not the disruption guys um, by your own admission. In fact, one of your chapters is called Reclaiming Innovation from Disruption. So I guess, first off, I wanted to ask what's wrong in your view with this disruption narrative when it comes to education? When we think about the disruption narrative, the Christensen narrative, how um, that is being applied in higher education and how it's... um, it, it's sort of weight that it's had and the momentum that it's had. Uh, it leads and to, just to sorry, just to just sorry, just to be clear, like the Clayton Christensen is Clayton Christensen, who is the famous the famous kind of author of this um, Harvard Business School guy who's come up with this idea that disruption is a thing in in business and all kinds of sectors. Yeah, and that's simply that that industries will be challenged by newcomers who will come into the industry with a cheaper product, a more efficient product, maybe a product that's not quite as good, but will in some way challenge the status quo and, and eventually will lead to those established industries um, falling away and the new industries will, will take over, or the new companies will take over. Um, and and that certainly has been a narrative um, of anxiety in higher education, where existing uh, indus- uh, institutions have been threatened by the technology industry or by MOOCs or by some other um, startup that will come in and potentially replace uh, the existing institutions. And you have everything from um, Sebastian Thrun's sort of uh, you know proclamation that uh, in 50 years we'll only have 10 institutions of higher education left, and um, this anxiety that uh, all of higher ed will somehow be fundamentally disrupted by these new technologies. Um, and what we want to, uh, I think, try to do in this book is claim that, uh, one, we think that that is the wrong uh, narrative and the wrong pressure on higher education. Higher education needs to change and needs to evolve, and it always has. Um, but to do so from this perspective of threat rather than opportunity, uh, we think is fundamentally problematic. Interesting. What would you add to that, Josh, or... Yeah, I'd add a couple, a couple of things to that. Um, the first thing is is that we love higher education. You know, we've built our careers. We see so much good in what we do that it seems sort of nuts to want to throw it all away. And it seems like many of the people who are pushing a disruption narrative are people who are not working in, in higher education. We're also very suspicious of taking any kind of frameworks of change from the business world and applying them wholesale to higher education. We think that we need to understand our own culture, our own forces, and try to come up with some theories about how we should change and how we will change and how we must change. Part of that, it seems like, is that you're arguing that colleges actually don't get enough credit in the press and the and the with the public about how much things are actually changing. Um, in fact, in the book, you sort of say that colleges are changing, but people kind of dismiss it as not radical enough. But I, I wondered if you could explain, as you see it, what is changing at colleges. You're Eddie. You're working on innovation efforts at at Georgetown, for instance, and watching this space nationally. You know how what are what is actually happening that people may not be realizing. Yeah, so part of it is um, recognizing that hi- that higher ed has that 
a history of change throughout its entire existence. It, it is always evolving to the current cultural, social, and political environment that it happens to exist in, uh, what it needs to do to educate the citizenry um, that it is um, responsible for. Um, that has changed, you know, I think in its in its many hundred years uh, history, at least in the United States, um, from, uh, you know, you can go back to the GI Bill, you can go back to um, the land-grant institutions. They have all evolved in different ways to meet the demands um, that the current environment is required. And, and higher ed continues to do so. Um, what we mark in the book and what we're really excited about, I think, is this uh, investment in this, uh, this refocusing on the idea that higher ed is there to teach students, um, that learning is at the center of what higher ed's mission needs to be and should be. And that has, that has of course, been the case for a lot of institutions in higher ed. There are a lot of colleges, liberal arts colleges, smaller colleges that have always had that focus. Um, but what I think we're excited about, and, and, and really, I think it goes back to that first question about disruption. Um, what we're excited about is how higher ed is starting to see itself more as an ecosystem, uh, in, an integrated set of institutions that are tightly connected in a, in a variety of ways that are now all focusing, or at least have been for the past few years, on this idea that teaching and learning is at the core of what higher ed needs to do. Um, there are two things about that I think that are important. One is that um, this disruption narrative is all about um, how a particular kind of industry that produces something, creates a product, creates a kind of widget of some sort, um, will be disrupted by you know an, uh, a startup that can do that cheaper or better, faster, and so on. But higher ed as an industry, um, unlike, say, the newspaper industry or, or transportation or so on, is, is tightly connected, is this kind of ecosystem. We share, we, we, we work with each other to try to do things better, to try to connect in different kinds of ways. Um, and now I think what's fascinating for us, um, and you know, to, to flesh out that answer, you could talk about scholarship and research and all the different ways that we, that we connect. But now what we, I think, is, find interesting and, and fascinating is that that sharing is happening about how we teach and learn. Um, and so we're all connected in different ways around that problem, around that opportunity um, that I think is, is, is relatively new, um, but it does mark a kind of change in higher education that we're excited about. So if I could just summarize like a little bit of that is there, there was a sense that teaching was a solo art behind closed doors and people didn't really talk about it as much among colleagues. But now you find that institutions and professors are sharing more about the practices and tips. Is that is that what you're saying partly in that answer? Yeah, I think that's right. It's it also extends beyond the individual faculty member. I think that's happening at the the course level with the faculty member, but it's also happening at the institutional level. Um, so you're starting to see um, institutions share their knowledge, their data, their ways of thinking about how teaching and learning is happening um, in ways that probably were less common. Um, you know. 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and that started, or at least that became um, what we're trying to mark in this book is this moment where we think it's been happening and it's been really exciting that it's happening. We're not sure it's going to continue and we think it's important that it does continue. Um, so we think it's been happening for about the past six, seven years in a really intense way. But we're also starting to see some cracks in that. We want to try to make sure that there's some, um, some momentum there. So Josh, you definitely have perspective on this, both as your role as a leader at Dartmouth, but also as a, a longtime columnist covering these issues for Inside Higher Ed. Um, what is your take on, on how things are, are changing at colleges that people may not realize? Yeah, I think we can ground this and think about our kids. So I have two daughters now in college, and I've been struck that the, the teaching and learning that they're participating in is so much better than I experienced in college. 
Eddie's kids will, will go to school in four years and six years, I think it is. And, and, and his kids will get so much better experience in what they in teaching and learning you know how they learn and, and how they're taught and jeff by the time your kids go to school it's yeah, going a couple to be, years after that it, yeah. it's it's going to be way better still and we we're trying to think wow this is a pretty amazing story about these changes that that we've seen and we wanted to understand why is it that Colleges and universities seem to be realigning how teaching happens to what we know from learning science. So there's been all this research about how people learn and, and the best ways, and schools are literally changing the structures of how teaching is, is operationalized, how classrooms are put together, how courses are developed, and we saw this happening across higher ed, and we realized it's a story that no, one, no one's really talking about, and it's not even really noticed within colleges and universities. We don't really kind of say, wow, this has been these big changes, and try to recognize it uh, with our peers. So the book is really to kind of mark this turn to learning, and then to understand why this happened, and will this continue into the future. We we do think it, it, it could be fragile, this turn to learning, um, because it kind of happened without it, it, people saying, leaders saying, we should do this. There was a bunch of forces that came together, which we think really accelerated learning. So we want to try to kind of build a discipline that can really solidify this for the future. After the break, is the kind of innovation that these authors are arguing for, is it enough? to meet the needs of our fast-changing world. And what do all these developments in learning science mean for K-12 schools? Stay with us. This week's podcast is sponsored by Destinations Career Academy, powered by K-12. I asked Mike Dardaris, Senior Director of Career Readiness Education at K-12, why professional skills are so important in a changing job market. Those soft skills that we used to call them, we call them professional skills now because there's so much more than just being, you know, it's like a soft thing, uh, are the the key to success. You know, as simple as knowing how to disagree and, and having a productive disagreement, knowing how to ask for help and when to take initiative. These are things that employers, and we're not talking, you know, just little mom and pop shops, which we get great information from, but we're also talking about multinational, um, huge corporations are saying, showing up to work on time, understanding how to collaborate and to solve problems, how to communicate and how to lead and how to follow also. Those are you know, monumental skills that we take for granted, but not really have figured out how to deliberately teach. And when it comes to deliberately teaching, if it doesn't take the first time or stick, how do you have an intervention for that? So if a student's not good at collaborating, You can't just say, you're not a good collaborator. You have to pinpoint the areas for improvement and then reteach that strategy. These are teachable skills. Thanks again to Destinations Career Academy and K-12 for their support. Now back to the episode. As I've been, you know, on a similar journey of discovery to you all, but from a journalistic perspective, but a few years ago, as as you all know, I had this lucky chance to get a fellowship at Harvard in journalism. Um, And I was specifically researching kind of because of the kind of hype around MOOCs and the excitement about these large scale online courses that you were both in the, in the process of actually pioneering at your various institutions. Um, It was seen as this really big public moment in higher ed. It was a lot of ink in national magazines. 
And, you know, at that time, you know, the whole premise, and I was pretty convinced that there was going to be this big movement around change in teaching at colleges. But I, I have to say, from from my honest perspective these days, it feels like there's less energy, that that, that kind of energy has faded. And so, um, which kind of goes against the argument you're making. So I'm curious, you know, what you would say to someone who says, hasn't there actually been, a because of so many other issues facing higher ed, some existential issues that hasn't this actually moved to the back burner again? It, it's very much true that the, the MOOC hype has gone away, the MOOC bubbles deflated, even though lots of um, schools now are looking at new methods of open online education, um, bringing degree programs to scale. There, there's actually more going on than when in 2012 when the bubble happened. But what really happened is that whole MOOC excitement helped us build an infrastructure that we've been able to um, diffuse throughout all throughout our institutions. So nowadays, it, it really is becoming standard practice for faculty to think about working with non-faculty educators, instructional designers, um, media educators, experts in assessment, when they think about putting together their residential face-to-face -face courses. Now, certainly not all courses, and not in all places, and not all institutions. But at many, many, many institutions, for instance, the large introductory gateway courses have been completely rethought um, in terms of how they're, they're, they're developed, how they're delivered. And we think that this is a great story, right? This is an amazing change, and the MOOC bubble helped accelerate it. And this this shift that, particularly in introductory courses, have gotten so much better over time, um, really needs to be discussed so it can be further diffused throughout higher education. Yeah, and I, I think. I think you're actually both right in, in, in this as well. I think um, th everything that Josh said is certainly what motivated us to write this book and, and things that we're fascinated about and interested in. Um, but we're also concerned that this is getting put back on the back burner, um, that, that for a period of time there was a particular kind of momentum and energy around this, and then other things are now coming up that are as important or more important and shift that attention. And so it's, it's easy to see a time where we stop to pay attention to the need um, to actually focus on teaching and learning in the way that we have been. So we want to kind of keep that momentum going. We think it's important to do. We think it actually is the thing that will keep higher ed viable um, in, in the kind of face of this disruption narrative or these, these forces of disruption. And if we're not doing that, we're, get, we're I think, you know, we're, we're completely vulnerable to those kinds of pressures. Now, the other question then is, to play devil's advocate, you know, is what, what's going on, is it enough? You know, you're, you're, you've you know, you're arguing you've built this infrastructure thanks to this momentum, but is the change you're making that you're saying is happening? Is it enough to 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 be to meet the needs and the challenges of of students and and higher ed institutions? Yeah, that that's a great question, and that's that's a hard one to answer. Um, and and it obviously also goes back to the first question about disruption. Um, if if what we do is not going to get us to a place where where we have built a kind of a really tight net um, that uh, resists certain kinds of pressures from alternative industries or other places that are claiming they can do the work in the same way uh, or better or just cheaper um, in, in, in many cases, um, then, you know, will it be enough for us to continue? And our argument in the book, or at least one of the arguments that we're making, is it, it, certainly if we do not continue to pay attention 
to the value and the import of, of really reflecting on and innovating in the teaching and learning space, then it won't be enough. Um, then, then that's the place where I think, um, or we think that higher education will, will kind of be susceptible to that disruption narrative. Is it enough? Well, um, it depends on, on, on the framework that you're looking at, of course. Um, uh, higher ed in the United States uh, teaches about 20 million students um, uh, right now. That's a, a large number of students to try to imagine another industry coming along and taking over uh, without the kind of infrastructures that that is in place. Could it happen? Well, that was the threat of MOOCs, right? MOOCs were threatening not because all of a sudden we had this online environment where people could lecture. Um, we, we've had that for, for 20 years or more. What we've, uh, what they were anxious about and, and what a lot of people in higher ed were anxious about was this idea that that could be done at a, at a significant scale that could create an opportunity for others um, to kind of come in and disrupt the, the kind of network that we have in higher ed. I, you know, that in and of itself, the sort of scale model, I think, for the most part, is the thing that has been completely deflated um, in the MOOC space. Other things about um, that kind of a MOOC, that MOOC hysteria and the MOOC momentum um, are still there, as Josh was saying, kind of the online space, the continued look at open education and so on. But that, that idea that you're going to get 100,000 students in a class, they're going to learn well, and that's going to somehow challenge um, the status quo of, of higher ed, I think, um, is, is less of a concern. And therefore, because it's less of a concern, there becomes the potential for complacency. Um, and that's what we're trying. That's the, the force we're trying to, to challenge. Um, but I don't know that I have a great answer to the question, is it enough? I think that's, not, that's an ongoing problem that we have to continue to work toward. Right. I mean, that's going to be the, and that is kind of the, the narrative you're up against with the disruption narrative, which is promising faster than higher ed can go. What do you say to this, Josh, like as far as to those who would say like, oh, if, if colleges are moving the way they've, or that they've set up this infrastructure and they're doing it by, you know, slowly, slowly, is that going to, is that going to meet? Yeah. Is that going to work on the, is that going to be the right time scale to make the changes needed in time? Yeah, I mean, in the book, we talk about many of the forces that are making it very challenging for higher education as a sector um, and individual colleges and universities. You know, we're up against demographic headwinds, um, rising costs. There's all sorts of challenges. What we try to argue is that the way for colleges and universities, the way forward is to not commoditize the teaching and learning, that you really um, have to put educators at the center of how you design the, the teaching and learning, which is the core of what our institutions are doing. And that um, efforts to, to try to make that less expensive, either by relying on adjuncts or relying only on technology and trying to put, take faculty uh, out of that, um, are, are bound to fail. So part of the, the book is that um, an argument that we really do need to invest in, in teaching and learning, and that part of those, that investment is to um, think about research and development and innovation. And we think that that's happening at many schools. I think that's right. I think the other thing that I would just um, note is one of the, the challenges that um, 
we've seen in higher ed is that the anxiety that was that drove a lot of this change um, seven, eight years ago um, led to uh, many institutions thinking that what they needed to become were these more agile, more flexible spaces that became like boot camps or became like this other thing that they were afraid were, were going to disrupt them. Um, and it, it's kind of an interesting sort of version of trying to shift these institutions into this very different space. From my perspective, um, and I think um, what we try to argue in the book, that's fundamentally um, wrong. That's taking things in in exactly the wrong direction. You're not building on the strengths that you have. You're not building on the things that are successful. You're also not building on the kind of legacy and history that is so important to what you higher ed offers as an industry um, to try to become this other thing that they're never going to be good at. They're never going to be competitive in that space. Um, So the, you know, disruption narrative and one of the challenges with it is is it creates this this anxiety that you have to be this other thing um, that you're not going to be able to compete um, with these new industries in and that we think is completely wrong-headed so their book focuses on higher education but what about k-12 if there are breakthroughs in learning science informing college teaching shouldn't those also be passed to schools It's a very different environment, and I think we're still struggling to try to understand um, where those best practices are, where the most impactful practices are, the the deeper practices. So I I, I think we're right at the beginning of this, um, and we have a lot to learn um, from K-12 education practices and, and investment in that space for so long. We also have an opportunity not to get mired um, in that long history, right? I think we have some advantages and some disadvantages that we can we can certainly try to understand and work from. Yeah, I'd say to this, Jeff, that like when you drop your kids off at school now, you expect that where they go is going to be learner-centric and stu- student-centric. You don't expect when you drop your kids off that they're going to have a curriculum and they're going to cover it and your kids are going to be kind of treated like widgets, like the teachers get to know your kids as individuals, right? That's what you look for. And there's, there's been a long history of that in, in, in higher ed, certainly when you know three of us were in, in college. The idea of a learner-centric education, it happened at some places. You know, There were some small liberal arts colleges that always did this, um, but it was certainly uneven across the higher ed ecosystem. And at a lot of schools, it was content-centric, um, and the idea of, of learner-centric wasn't really a thing. So what we're saying now is that's really starting to change. It's not universal. It's not everywhere. But there's a critical mass now of, of every institution that we visited really trying to create learner-centric environments. And that's a new thing, and it's a great thing. And, and I think we're, you know, I mean, how far are we behind, you know, the Montessori schools or nursery schools? Um, you know, we're, we're decades behind those folks. <laughs> but, you know, I think that's real fast change is, is happening. So hopefully by the time your kids get to, get to school, it won't be so uneven. Just to cut in with some context. My wife and I have two little kids. One is in third grade, the other is in pre-K right now. And we do think, of course, we think a lot about what things are going to be like at college when they get there. Right? Like right now, you still have examples of great classes and, and kind of not so. But by the time your kids get to school, that variation will be worked out of the system because of pressures of, for us to improve and because of all the things we try to detail in the book. The, the last question I have is, what do you think, what do you see as the biggest obstacles to the kind of vision you are trying to build at your institutions and that you see 
uh, and then talk about in, in the book. Um, Josh, do you, I, I wonder what you'd say to, to that. Yeah, I mean, I think our biggest risk, and, and Eddie kind of uh, talked about the, this earlier, is that if we embrace this idea in higher education that technology can be the answer, and that if, if we um, try to do everything we can to you know, we're trying, we need to lower costs and we need to build access. But if that access is built on the backs of educators, it will not work. So, you know, I, I see that our biggest risk is that there's, that we really don't understand and embrace that the way forward is to try to provide the relational type of education that you get if you go, I mean, frankly, if you go to a place like Dartmouth or Georgetown, you're going to get that education, you know. But it's, it's very expensive. And the question is, how can we, we make that sort of high-quality, liberal arts, relational education accessible and available to everyone so it's not just reserved for the, the few? And you know, that's one of the things that we hope to, to build a discipline around, to have these discussions across the, the post-secondary ecosystem. Well, thanks so much to you both for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, Jeff. Great, Jeff. Really enjoyed speaking with you. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Each week, we bring you interviews and stories like this one. If you don't already, please subscribe wherever you tap into podcasts. And if you like it, please share with a friend or colleague. And that's really the best way to support the show. I'm excited to announce that we're going to be doing our first live podcast recording at the South by Southwest EDU Festival in Austin. That's on March 9th. If you're going to be at the conference, I hope you'll come by and hear an episode in person, and I'd love to meet you. Check out our show page for details. And, you know, I just want to say thanks to the folks behind the scenes here at EdSurge, including our fearless managing editor, Tony Wan, and Stephen Nunu, our K-12 editor, who you're going to be hearing more and more on upcoming episodes on the podcast. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening. I'll leave you with one more, okay, it's possibly gratuitous, clip from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which when I applied to college, I put it down on my college application as my favorite movie. There was like a section that asked what kind of cultural stuff you like. Yeah. This is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics.